So here we are. Uh, here I am, the last night before I venture back into the world. I must say that uh, you all are some strong people and a strong sangha, because I had the opportunity not to be here tonight. I was given a choice. Oh, you don't have to do a Dharma talk if you don't want to. And I kept trying to like abide by that, and y'all kept calling me. It just wouldn't be right to leave without saying something else. So here I am. I just want to really express my gratitude and appreciation um, for what's been available to me in terms of my learning and being in training. So um, this Sangha, this community of people will go down in my memory as the folks that trained me um, in terms of teaching and working within the longer retreats. So um, never will that happen again. When I'm here the next time teaching the long retreat, it'll be the second crew. So thank you very much. Thank you for your questions, for your practice, for our meetings, just for your being, really acknowledging uh, and honoring what you, we are up to here. So I'm going to do a little talking and do a little reading. And um, however, at this point, I will say um, thank you so much. And may those of you who are staying um, have a most glorious rest of the time here. So I'm going to talk about or, or give some reflections on the Triple Jewel. Um, every week we've been taking the precepts and uh, the Buddha Dharma Sangha, the jewels, um, as a way to create container and, and actually a holding for our practice. So uh, you'll be doing them again tomorrow morning, but I thought it would be really um, useful especially considering some of what I've been hearing and knowing what some of you all are working with, having been in the seat over there myself, to remind us, um, really not in a rote way as we take the precepts and as we uh, acknowledge and honor the Triple Jewel, but to really have our presence ourself into what it is we're doing and why it is we're doing it. So a little bit of comment on that. Uh, Rumi's, sometimes you hear a voice through the door calling you. As a fish out of water hears the waves. Come back, come back. This turning towards what you deeply love saves you. Understanding the interdependency and conditional nature of all things is essential to awakening. When we set the intention to be skillful, and reflect on our choices and their results, we open to a very rich arena of inquiry that can produce ongoing positive effects in our lives. It is probably fair to say that for many of us, some of us, all of us, we've come to this practice of meditation out of a need to understand ourselves, the need to clarify the confusion we live in. Many of us want to be free, we want to understand, we want to realize, to see for ourselves what is it all about. 
this life we live. Often we come in fed up with books. We've read enough. We've listened enough. We have met enough wise people. We have done everything we could to understand, and yet that understanding remains elusive or fleeting oftentimes. Secondhand knowledge somehow is not satisfactory and in the end will not lead to the realization of freedom. As long as there is no realization of the truth of our mind, there is no real understanding. So as Bonnie um, instructed last, uh, last night or suggested last night, you know, you're three weeks in and I'm, I'm sure you're filled up with lots of words, lots of Dharma talks, lots of instruction. So really invite you as you um, hear these words or listen these words to just allow them to shower over you. Not trying to remember what I said, not trying to understand or analyze or engage with it in a very effortful way, but just allowing it to wash over you like the waves of the ocean. So the other thing about this practice is that, um, as you've probably discovered by now, it takes a lot of courage. And it takes a willingness to be on the edge, to move against the stream, against the expectations and conditions of this culture that we live on in. John Donahue, in one of his poems, called For Courage, When the light around you lessens and your thoughts darken until your body feels fear, turn cold as a stone inside. When you find yourself bereft of any belief in yourself and all you unknowingly learned leaned on has fallen. When one voice commands your whole heart and it is raven dark, steady yourself and see that it is your own thinking that darkens your world. Search and you will find a diamond thought of light. Know that you are not alone and that the darkness has purpose. Gradually, it will school your eyes to find the one gift your life requires, hidden within the night corner. Invoke the learning of every suffering you have suffered. Close your eyes, gather all the kindling about your heart to create one spark. That is all you need to nourish the flame that will cleanse the dark of its weight of festered fear. A new confidence will come alive to urge you towards higher ground where your imagination will learn to engage difficulty as its most rewarding threshold. So finding refuge. Martin Luther King Jr., Viktor Frankl, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Joan of Arc, Harriet Tubman, Tinahasi Coates, Aung San Suu, and many of our current day writers, artists, educators, and activists, and many others known by me and not known, live the lives they've lived or are living 
to leave the legacies they left or are making, to exist to end injustice, to survive devastating conditions, to move mountains, to save hundreds of slaves through the Underground Railroad, to move a nation. They had to have faith in a greater purpose for themselves and the world. To make it through this life, we need to each find our sense of purpose, to orient and support ourselves amidst the fragmented pulls of our busy lives and the chaos, devastation, hatred, and destruction that seems to be continually escalating in this world we live in. I think for many of us, the ability to remain deluded to the fact that there is much challenge and crisis afoot and to meet this world as it is and where it is, whether ourselves, the individual, in relationship to our own small worlds, or the larger community of beings, including the earth, we must have some survival skills that actually allow us to thrive and be a contribution. We can begin here by taking refuge. Refuge offers support for our journey as we move through the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows in a lifetime, through gain and loss, through peace and chaos. In taking refuge, we reaffirm and remember our sacred connection with the world. Refuge is not necessarily religious. Refuge can be as simple as making conscious our trust in a lineage of teachings. We may take refuge in a higher power, such as AA, where it has shown that such faith has proven to be transformative for thousands and thousands of people around the world. Much of the success of 12-step programs and other support groups rests on faith, and in the power of their sangha, the conscious community that is created. We thrive with faith. Our faith may be spiritual or clearly non-religious, a faith in the natural world, in the unborn generations ahead, in life itself. To live wisely, we need to find a trusting connection to the world. Taking refuge reorients our life. Our refuge becomes a touchstone, a wellspring to draw from at every challenge we face. In our tradition or this tradition, we include in our training taking refuge. In Buddhism, taking refuge is the door we walk through as we engage, integrate, and metabolize the words and the practice on our journey to freedom. An examination into where we find ourselves looking for a safe place, a sanctuary, where do we find that? And do we really? What do we rely on? Most often, this brings us to the realization and recognition that we've been resting or relying on something or someone that was not really true at all. 
So an opportunity to ask yourself, what might you be taking refuge in? Relationships? What have you invested in them? How much do we cling to others? Being in relationship through attachment, fear, laziness, work. If only my boss would be, if only my salary was, I really got to go back to school so that I can obtain the level of success at this job that I'd like. Our intellect, (laughs) many of us take refuge in our intellect, or shall I say false refuge. Money, the pursuit of getting it, the effort to hold on to it, the desire to spend it, food, substances, the physical body, and even depression or any of the other moods or emotions that we may find ourselves habitually sitting in. This practice is not here to make us suffer. We only suffer because we have not practiced wisely because we have not done what is necessary to let go of ignorance, to let go of our attachments. It is important to acknowledge that. Perhaps it is false perception that because we are practicing, we have to be terribly serious and feel that unless we experience some pain or hardship, that somehow something is not quite right. To this day, there are times that I get caught in that trap, that mind state of aversion and attachment. It seems we really believe that unless we go through some kind of hardship, we would not be able to let go. It is true that more often than not, unless it hurts, our ignorance is not acknowledged. If it does not hurt, we can go on forever without being really aware of it and hurting ourselves and making deeper and deeper habit patterns. This seems to be our human predicament. Unless something hurts, we don't really wake up. We don't open our eyes and look. So whether once or often or every day to recite the refuges as a reminder out of our habit, we take refuge in things like anger and worry. We tend to take refuge in self-pity or pleasure, distraction, obsession with ourselves or wanting to eat or sleep all the time. And then take refuge in feeling guilty about eating or sleeping. So we have established a habitualized tendency to take refuge in the non-skillful things, things that make us unhappy. If we did not have reminders, if we did not have skillful means to bring back into consciousness what's really important in life, we would forget ourselves and never see the way out of suffering. It is said that the Buddha said, going for refuge is an act by which we acknowledge the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha as guiding ideals.
moral discipline. There are, O monks, eight streams of merit, streams of the wholesome, nourishments of happiness that are heavenly, ripening in happiness, conducive to heaven, and that lead to whatever is wished for, loved, and agreeable to one's welfare and happiness. What are the eight? Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. The keeping of precepts is seen as a protection and blessing for us all. The five precepts as translated by Gil Fransdale. For the purpose of training, I vow to refrain from taking life. For the purpose of training, I vow to refrain from taking what is not given. For the purpose of training, I vow to refrain from sexual misconduct. For the purpose of training, I vow to refrain from false speech. For the purpose of training, I vow to refrain from intoxicants which lead to carelessness. Poem by Mark Nepo. Yes, we can talk. Having loved enough and lost enough, I am no longer searching, just opening. No longer trying to make sense of pain, but trying to be a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub into a pearl. So we can talk a while, but then we must listen, the way rocks listen to the sea. And we can churn at all that goes wrong, but then we must lay all distractions down and water every living seed. And yes, on nights like tonight, I too feel alone. But seldom do I face it squarely enough to see that it is a door into the endless breath that has no breather, into the surf that human shells call God. From the teachings of the Buddha, the parable of the raft from the Majjhima Nikaya in speaking about Dhamma. Monks, I will teach you the parable of the raft for getting across, not for retaining it. It is like a man who, going on a journey, sees a great stretch of water, the near bank with dangers and fears but there is neither a boat for crossing over nor a bridge across. It occurs to him that to cross over from the perils of this bank to the security of the farther bank, he should fashion a raft out of sticks and branches and depending on the raft, cross over to safety. When he has done this, it occurs to him that the raft has been very useful, and he wonders if he ought to take it with him on his head or on his shoulders. 
What do you think, monks? That the man is doing what should be done to the raft? No, Lord. What should that man do, monks? When he has crossed over to the beyond, he must leave the raft and proceed on his journey. Monks, a man doing this would be doing what should be done to the raft. In this way, I have taught you. Dhamma, like the parable of the raft, for getting across, not for retaining. You monks, by understanding the parable of the raft, must not cling to right states of mind and all the more to wrong states of mind. So as we sit and we practice and we engage with the teachings, with the Buddha, with the Sangha, to know that at some point the raft must be left at the shore. After having crossed over, you're in now, I think, the, uh, the building period. I think all of you probably at this point have a raft of some making um, and might want to spend some time checking it out to see if it'll get you across. But knowing that once you get there, you're going to leave it behind and really become personal and intimate with the understanding of the way of living that brings present uh, freedom and ease and spaciousness and love and joy. Noble friendship or the Sangha. Then the venerable Ananda approached the Lord, prostrated himself, and sat to one side. Sitting there, the venerable Ananda said to the Lord, Half of this holy life, Lord, is good and noble friends. Companionship with the good, association with the good. Do not say that, Ananda. It is the whole of this holy life this friendship, companionship, and association with the good. So perhaps by now, many of you are beginning to recognize that I'm not saying a whole lot of new stuff that you haven't heard before. But perhaps as a result of hearing these words, you are in the process of remembering. The spiritual truths are not out there somewhere in a book, in a talk, on a video, not something you sign on for. It is intrinsically in us, closer than we have allowed ourselves to know prior to taking on these practices. We forget. We don't really listen. We don't remember to listen. There is much about this path that at its core is about forgetting and remembering. It is the nature of things. The act of going for refuge marks the point where you commit yourself to taking the Dharma as the primary guide for living your life. Taking relief from internal and external dangers, one becomes committed to living in line with the principles that actions based on skillful intentions lead to happiness 
and actions based on unskillful intentions lead to suffering. Although the tradition of going to refuge is an ancient practice, it is still very much relevant for our practice today. We are faced with the same internal dangers that faced people in the faraway times. We still need the same protection as they did. When we take refuge, it is essentially an act of taking refuge in the doctrine of karma. It is an act of surrender in that one is committed to aligning the life that is lived with the principles and understanding of karma or cause and effect. To take refuge in this way ultimately means to take refuge in the quality of our intentions for that is where the essence of karma lies. From the Dhammapada, they go to many a refuge, to mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines, people threatened with danger. That is not the secure refuge. That is not the highest refuge. That is not the refuge having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and stress. But when having gone for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, you see with right discernment the Four Noble Truths, stress, the cause of stress, the transcending of stress, and the Noble Eightfold Path, the way to stilling stress. That is the secure refuge, that the highest refuge, having gone to, which you gain release from all suffering and stress. There are a number of ways to help us remember. Meditation, collective rituals, being in nature, reconnecting with a sense of spirit and aliveness, as Bonnie pointed out last night, being aware of ceremony and the sacredness of living. In this tradition, the first step in taking us towards remembering who we really are is the taking of refuge. Refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The three refuges are also referred to as the triple jewels or gems. They're called this because they are valuable and because in those ancient times, gems were thought to have protective powers. These gems do create, through practice, the protective powers against greed, aversion, and delusion. Tanisaro Bhikkhu says or states, the triple gem far surpasses other gems because in this respect its protective powers can be put to the test and can lead further than those of any physical gem all the way to absolute freedom from the uncertainties of the realms of aging, sickness, and death. A person taking refuge in the Buddha is not asking for the Buddha to personally intervene to provide protection. The puppeteer up there. 
Still, one of the Buddha's central teachings is that human life is fraught with dangers. And so the concept of refuge is central, is central, is central to the path of practice. The practice is aimed at gaining release from those dangers because the mind is the source both of the dangers and of the release. There is a need for two levels of refuge, external, which provides models and guidelines so that we can identify which qualities in the mind lead to danger and which to release and internal qualities. For example, the qualities leading to release that we develop in our mind in imitation of our external models. The internal level is where true refuge is found. On the internal level, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha are the skillful qualities we develop in our own minds, imitation of our external models. For instance, the Buddha was a person of wisdom, purity, and compassion. When we develop wisdom, purity, and compassion in our own minds, they form our refuge on an internal level. This is the point where the three aspects of the triple gems become one, beyond the reach of greed, anger, and delusion, and thus totally secure. Another poem for you, and clearly I'm moving back and forth in terms of creating a context where the mind is engaged, but the actual uh, other ways of knowing are also engaged. This poem is entitled, She Let Go, by Reverend Sapphire Rose, a spiritual leader in uh, Oakland, California. She let go. She let go without a thought or a word. She let go. She let go of the fear. She let go of the judgments. She let go of the confluence of opinions swarming around her head. She let go of the committee of indecision within her. She let go of all the right reasons wholly and completely, without hesitation or worry, she just let go. She didn't ask anyone for advice. She didn't read a book on how to let go. She didn't search the scriptures. She just let go. She let go of all of the memories that held her back. She let go of all of the anxiety that kept her from moving forward. She let go of the planning and all of the calculations about how to do it just right. She didn't promise to let it go. She didn't journal about it. She didn't write the projected date in her daytimer. She made no public announcement and put no ad in the paper. She didn't check the weather report or read her daily horoscope. She just let go. She didn't analyze whether she should let go. She didn't call her friends to discuss the matter. She didn't do a five-step spiritual mind treatment. She didn't call the prayer line. 
She didn't utter one word. She just let go. No one was around when it happened. There was no applause or congratulations. No one thanked her or praised her. No one noticed a thing. Like a leaf falling from a tree, she just let go. There was no effort. There was no struggle. It wasn't good and it wasn't bad. It was what it was, and it is just that. In the space of letting go, she let it all be. A small smile came over her face. A light breeze blew through her, and the sun and the moon shone forevermore. On the outer level, we take refuge in the historical Buddha, a remarkably wise human being. I don't know if I said this in here, but I don't know if you ever stop and really think just how amazing this is. That over 2,000 years ago, some man living his life got inspired to seek out a way that we could actually live our lives free of suffering. That's amazing. And what's even more amazing that here we are sitting October 1st, 2016, practicing and inquiring into these same concepts and philosophies. That's amazing. I almost went off like Bonnie, (laughs) talking about Buddha. And her relationship, well, he's at my back. (laughs) And I got the Sangha over here and the Dharma over here. So we're rolling along just fine. (laughs) It is not the man, Siddhartha Gautama, we take refuge in, but the fact of his awakening. Trusting in the belief that he did awaken to the truth and that he did this by developing qualities that we too can develop and that the truths to which he awoke provide a best perspective for the conduct of our lives. We take refuge in the Dharma or the teachings, the teachings of generosity, compassion, and wisdom that bring freedom. The Dharma, the path of practice the Buddha taught his followers, the words of the teaching, the act of putting the teachings into practice, and the attainment of awakening as a result of that practice. This three-pointed understanding of the word dharma actually acts as a map, directing us on how to take the external refuges and make them internal by learning about the teachings, using them to develop the qualities that the Buddha himself used to attain awakening, and then causing the realization of the same release from the dangers that he found in the quality of freedom that we can touch inside. We take refuge in the Sangha, in the Buddhist community of awakened beings. This outer refuge connects us to tradition and to millions of followers of the Buddha's path. 
There are two senses of this external level of Sangha. The historical ancestral lineage of the community of monks and nuns and lay people who have practiced the Dharma and who have gained a glimpse of the freedom that is available and the communities of monks and nuns and lay people who, though they may not be reliable models of behavior, have helped to keep these teachings alive for more than 2,500 years. So when looking for guidance in the conduct of our lives, we must look for the living examples provided by the ideal Sangha. Through this example, we can know that awakening is available to all and not just the Buddha and how awakening expresses itself in real life. You know, for for many, many years, um, the first actual 12 years of my practice, what was more prevalent and relevant for mind development in the practice was the Sangha. For the first 12 years of my practice, Basically, what I did was attend a retreat a year. And not only did I attend a retreat a year, I attended the POC retreat a year. And it was out of uh, actually forming and becoming known within that community of people um, that I sit here before you today. I think I told you all when I gave my first Dharma talk or alluded to it um, that I turned 60 this year on my birthday, and I am totally aversive to technology. I use it because I have to. Um, And I do not have a website, um, nor do I find myself on Facebook. And my sangha back in Brooklyn, New York, who I've been traveling with for 20 years now, decided it was time for me uh, to have a website. So on my 60th birthday, they all put their bucks together and bought me a webmaster to make a website. That arose out of Sangha. So, you never know, you never know what's available um, by moving and growing and developing your practice within the community of like-minded people. Taking the inner refuge of the Buddha. Taking the inner refuge, we shift from the historical Buddha to the Buddha nature in all beings. We take refuge in the potential for awakening in everyone we meet. The inner refuge of the Dharma shifts from the outer teachings to the inner truth, to seeing things the way they are. We commit ourselves to follow the truth and live in accord with it. The inner Sangha shifts from the Buddhist community to all beings dedicated to awakening. We take refuge in this stream. And lastly, taking the innermost refuge. Taking the innermost refuge in the Buddha Here we take refuge in the timeless consciousness and the ultimate taste of freedom. As Ajahn Chah explains, we take refuge in the Buddha, but what is this Buddha? When we see with the eye of wisdom, we know that the Buddha is timeless, unborn, unrelated to any body, 
any history, any place. Buddha is the ground of all being, the realization of the truth of the unmoving mind. The Buddha was not enlightened in India. In fact, he was never enlightened, was never born, and never died. This timeless Buddha is our true home, our abiding place. We can see the extremes of the mind, happiness, unhappiness, pleasure and pain, inspiration and despair. We can see hope and depression. We can see praise and blame. We can see agitation, sleepiness, boredom, the whole range of it. And that seeing is a balancing factor because we become aware of our attachments to these moods, these state of mind. Without a refuge in the knowing, in the awakened mind, we'd never be able to look at the mind. We'd be lost in confusion. The refuge in knowing is extremely important. Taking refuge within the Buddha actually keeps us in touch with what is real, what is actually true. That is most probably one of the reasons we tend to forget about it. The meaning of mindfulness is recollection, to remember. We can remember every time we get lost in being silly or in being unkind or impatient or in being angry or stupid. We can also remember that we don't have to change ourselves. The compassion of the Buddha nature refuge is that in being awake to what is happening, there is no judgment. We don't have to become somebody who is not angry or who is not silly. We can actually acknowledge what is happening and accept it in consciousness and in our hearts. As soon as we have this clear vision of what's going on, we realize that it's changing and see clearly the uselessness of struggling to keep things permanent, to keep ourselves as permanent entities. Most of our struggle in life is to create situations where me or my personality will never have to face suffering or endure pain, will never feel embarrassed, ashamed, or guilty. That is why we are so good at forgetting. And we have to learn to remember again. We have to learn to be aware, to have mindfulness in our heart as a refuge and as a protector. It protects us. It protects the heart. Taking refuge in the innermost Dharma we rest in the eternal freedom. Zen ancestor Huang Po's words proclaim, your true nature is something never lost to you, even in moments of delusion, nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. It is the nature of your own mind, the source of all things, your original 
luminous brilliance. You, the richest person in the world, have been going around laboring and begging when all the while the treasure you seek is within you. It is who you are. To be in touch with the ordinariness of our life is something very challenging for us because we are conditioned towards getting our energy through things that are interesting or stimulating. Or we focus our attention on the next thing, on what's going to happen next. Unless we have guidance and help from wise people, from people who have an understanding of the path, we tend to do our spiritual practice in the same way we live our lives. We are still looking for the excitement, for something special, for the big bang, for the flashing lights, for the superior insights that's going to solve all my problems. With the practice, there is a change in our relationship with our mind. Being in harmony with Dharma is making peace with whatever is going on now. Making peace with the way things are. The natural process of the realization of Dharma is the awareness that life is a constant opportunity to give to be generous, to be kind, to be in service in whatever situation we are in. As we let go or let be, we don't get caught up and obsessed with ourselves. We can actually be useful. We can help. We can give. We can encourage ourselves and the people around us. Taking refuge in the innermost Sangha is to claim the ultimate trust. There has been the knowing of this in and over time by those who are awakened. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of this when he said, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. We cannot fall or be separated from this truth of interconnectedness. Shirley Turcott, another one of my teachers, a Métis woman from Canada, states, We are all one, so our symptoms and emotions, thought patterns, are all my relations, and not solely your own but rather a connection of all past, all present, and all future. The ritual of taking refuge can transform our consciousness. A longtime prisoner who had began practicing and learning Buddhism in jail, he needed a meaningful purpose to get, to him, to get him through the horrors of prison. He took refuges when his teacher came in to see him in prison and began to be more responsible in his life for his actions, thoughts, and perceptions. Here's what he said. 
Everybody's got to have refuge in something to get through here. And I suggest to get through here is to get through life, no matter what the conditions and circumstances of the individual life is about. When we take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, all things become our teacher. Life itself is our teacher. And there comes the realization and proclamation that there is one true nature of which we are all a part. Thank you for your listening. I hope some words touched you. And if we can just continue to sit, I'm going to end with a last poem for you. The Awakening. A time comes in your life when you finally get, when in the midst of all your fears and insanity, you stop dead in your tracks and somewhere the voice inside your head cries out, enough, enough. Enough fighting and crying and blaming and struggling to hold on. Then, like a child quieting down after a tantrum, you blink back your tears and begin to look at the world through new eyes. This is your awakening. You realize it's time to stop hoping and waiting for something to change or for happiness, safety, and security to magically appear over the next horizon. You realize that in the real world, there aren't always fairy tale endings and that any guarantee of happily ever after must begin with you. And in the process, a sense of serenity is born of acceptance. You awaken to the fact that you are not perfect and that not everyone will always love, appreciate, or approve of who or what you are. And that's okay. They are entitled to their own views and opinions. You learn the importance of loving and championing yourself. And in the process, a sense of newfound confidence is born of self-approval. You stop complaining and blaming other people for the things they did to you or didn't do for you. And you learn that the only thing you can really count on is the unexpected. You learn that people don't always say what they mean or mean what they say and that not everyone will always be there for you and everything isn't always about you. So, you learn to stand on your own and to take care of yourself and in the process, a sense of safety and security is born of self-reliance. You stop judging and pointing fingers and you begin to accept people as they are and to overlook their shortcomings and human frailties 
And in the process, a sense of peace and contentment is born of forgiveness. You learn to open up to new worlds and different points of view. You begin reassessing and redefining who you are and what you really stand for. You learn the difference between wanting and needing and you begin to discard the doctrines and values you've outgrown or should never have brought into in the first place. You learn that there is power and glory in creating and contributing and you stop maneuvering through life merely as a consumer looking for your next fix. You learn that principles such as honesty and integrity are not the outdated ideals of a bygone era but the mortar that holds together the foundation upon which you must build a life. You learn that you don't know everything, it's not your job to save the world, and that you can't teach a pig to sing. You learn the only cross to bear is the one you chose to carry, and that martyrs get burned at the stake. Then you learn about love. You learn to look at relationships as they really are, and not as you would have them to be. You learn that alone does not mean lonely. You stop trying to control people, situations, and outcomes. You learn to distinguish between guilt and responsibility and the importance of setting boundaries and learning to say no. You also stop working so hard at putting your feelings aside, smoothing things over, and ignoring your needs. You learn that your body really is your temple. You begin to care for it and treat it with respect. You begin to eat a balanced diet, drinking more water and taking more time to exercise. You learn that being tired fuels doubt, fear, and uncertainty, and so you take more time to rest. And just food fuels the body. And just as food fuels the body, laughter fuels our soul. So you take more time to laugh and to play. You learn that for the most part, you get in life what you deserve and that much of life truly is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You learn that anything worth achieving is worth working for and that wishing for something to happen is different than working towards making it happen. More importantly, you learn that in order to achieve success, you need direction, discipline, and perseverance. You learn that no one can do it all alone and that it's okay to risk asking for help. You learn the only thing you must fear is fear itself. You learn to step right into and through your fears because you know that whatever happens, you can handle it. And to give in to fear is to give away the right to live life on your own terms. You learn to fight for your life and not to squander it, living under a cloud of impending doom. 
You learn that life isn't always fair. You don't <laughs> always get what you think you deserve. And that sometimes bad things happen to unsuspecting good people. And you learn not to always take it personally. You learn that nobody's punishing you and everything isn't always somebody's fault. It's just life happening. You learn to admit when you are wrong and to build bridges instead of walls. You learn that negative feelings such as anger, envy, and resentment must be understood and redirected or they will suffocate the life out of you and poison the universe that surrounds you. You learn to be thankful and to take comfort in many of the simple things we take for granted, things that millions of people upon the earth can only dream about, a full refrigerator, clean running water, a soft warm bed, and a long hot shower. Then you begin to take responsibility for yourself by yourself and you make yourself a promise to never betray yourself and to never ever settle for less than your heart's desire you make it a point to keep smiling to keep trusting and to stay open to every wonderful possibility you hang a wind chime outside your window so you can listen to the wind Finally, with courage in your heart, you take a stand, you take a deep breath, and you begin to design the life you want to live as best you can. May the merits of our practice benefit all beings. May all beings be safe. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings take care of themselves with ease. May all beings come to know the freedom that comes from the awareness of knowing absolutely, fully who they are. 